You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Today I want to talk about a very important question. And it's a question that really uh, is something for every Christian to consider because it'll affect us some way along the way. And so here's a simple question. Is it God's will to heal everyone? Now, when we ask that question, is it God's will to heal everyone? What we're really asking is, does God promise healing for everyone? Or, to be even more accurate in the way that we present the question, does God promise physical, bodily healing for every believer? Because when we're talking about everyone here, really what we're talking about is every believer, number one. And number two, we need to specify that what we're speaking about is physical bodily healing. Now, that's the sense in which most people use the term, but sometimes people talk about the healing of the soul, the healing of the emotions, uh, whatever it may be. But we're talking about physical bodily healing. And we're talking about those who are born again, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Now, we're not saying that it's impossible for God to heal people who aren't believers. We see this in the scriptures, and we see it in in lived out in life as well, from time to time at least. But the question we're considering is, does God promise physical bodily healing for every believer? And let me just give a very straightforward answer to that question. It's this. Yes. Yes, God promises physical, bodily healing for every believer. We call it resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of the body for every believer, and that every believer will be resurrected in a body that will never again know sickness. It'll never again know injury or deformity or problem of any kind. We know this. We believe this. This is part of basic, fundamental Christian belief. I believe in the resurrection of the body is a line in the Apostles' Creed. This goes back to the Scriptures. This goes back to the earliest Christian belief. We believe in resurrection. And certainly, resurrection is God's promise of healing for every believer. We could find it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 and 43. I love this passage. It says this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Thank you, Jesus. That's the story of our body. Right now, on this side of eternity, our body is marked by corruption, dishonor, weakness. But but then in the resurrection, it's going to be marked by incorruption, glory, and power. That is wonderful. And I'll tell you this, this is part of our redemption. This is part of our salvation. You see, we believe that we have been justified, that we are being sanctified, that is made holy, and we believe that we will be glorified. We, we are now set free from the penalty of sin, We are increasingly set free from the power of sin, and one day we as believers will be set free from the very presence of sin. This is what we believe. This this isn't anything terribly unique among Christians. Christians, probably from all different denominations and tribes, believe this. Now, when people say or ask the question, is it God's will to heal everyone, or, or is it God's will to heal every believer, they are rarely thinking of the eventual resurrection and glorification of the believer. You see, I, I kind of did a little trick on you, didn't I? B- because it's as if I, I took the question and I answered it, but I didn't really answer it. B- because all Christians believe in the resurrection. And when we ask, is it God's will to heal everybody? We, we don't mean in heaven. We mean right here and now. Y- you see, what they generally mean by that question is... They're asking, is it God's will to heal everyone right here and right now? And, whether they intend to say it or not, people who insist that it is God's will to heal everyone right here and right now, 
they mean to say that the only reason people are not healed, the only reason believers are not healed right here and right now is because either they're ignorant of God's promises or they don't have the faith to receive God's promise. Now, why would people believe that? Why would people believe, number one, that it is God's will to heal every believer right here, right now, number one. And number two, why would they believe, and this is sort of a, a, a connection to that first truth, number two, that the only reasons people are not healed, believers are not healed right here, right now, is because either they're ignorant of God's promises or they don't have the faith to receive God's promises. Why would anybody believe that? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Number one, some people believe this. They believe that it's God's will to heal every believer right now because God does miracles today. He really does. I hope you know that. I hope you believe it. I hope you know and believe that we have a miracle-working God and that miracles did not stop with the biblical record. God does miracles today. And I know that even uh, my brothers, whom I would call cessationists, they believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today. They still believe that God does miracles today. This is commonly believed among Christians. God does miracles today, and that leads some people to believe that God will do a healing miracle for everybody, every believer who truly asks for it in faith. But I just have to say, God doesn't promise to heal everyone in every circumstance. There are people who really love Jesus, who really have faith, and they become sick or injured and are not healed. Sometimes they live with those difficult and painful conditions for a long time, and sometimes they die. If Jesus doesn't return first, we will all die. You see, the deterioration of aging is a kind of sickness in itself, and we all get old. So even though we do believe God does miracles today, that doesn't mean that God has promised to heal every believer right here, right now. Now, again, I, I don't want to come back to this too often, but it just God has promised ultimate bodily healing for every believer. That's true. But right here, right now, that is not a promise of God, uh, especially in the sense that deterioration and aging. You, you know, that is a kind of sickness in itself. We all get old. And unless Jesus returns first, we're all going to die. Now, some people also believe this, and this is coming because of more uh, what they would say biblical reasons. Some people believe it's God's will to heal every believer right here, right now, because Healing is mentioned in the work of Jesus, especially in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Let me read to you that verse, Isaiah 53, 5. It says this, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, that's a powerful thing, isn't it? By the stripes that would be laid upon the Messiah, there is healing for the people of God. And I just want you to know something and understand something, that this is delivered in the prophetic form of poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, part of the dynamic is you sort of uh, repeat ideas with different words to give emphasis. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. There is a sense in which each one of those four lines is saying the same or similar things, but it's repeating it in a poetic form for the sense of emphasis. Now, understanding that, there has been a lot of debate as to if Isaiah had in mind spiritual healing or physical healing. Again, now, Wounded for our transgressions, we know that's spiritual healing. Our transgressions, our sins. Bruised for our iniquities, we know that that's spiritual too, our sins. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Again, we're talking about spiritual things. And by his stripes we are healed. Now, is that talking about physical healing or spiritual healing? Healing from the sickness of sin. And the idea that by his stripes, 
by the, the, the blows that were laid upon Jesus the Messiah, but by the, the vicious whipping that he endured, that there was something sacrificial. There was something um, um, for his people. He purchased, so to speak, their healing in those stripes. What is it talking about? Spiritual healing or physical healing? Now, I think we find some guidance to this as we take a look at how this passage in Isaiah 53 is quoted in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, it quotes Isaiah 53, 5 and has in view physical healing. Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it quotes uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, but the view seems to be of spiritual healing. I think it's best to say that because we have both of these uses in Matthew chapter 8 and in 1 Peter chapter 2, that God has both aspects of healing in view. Both our spiritual and our physical healing was provided for by the suffering of Jesus Christ. I think that's kind of clear, both from Isaiah 53, 5, and how the New Testament uses and quotes that passage. Now, however, some have taken this to mean that every believer has the right, the promise, to perfect health right now. And again, if there's any lack of health, it's simply because that promise of Isaiah 53 has not been claimed in faith. Now, in that kind of thinking, they lay a lot of stress on the past tense of the phrase. You saw that in Isaiah 53, 5, didn't you? By his stripes, we are healed, are healed. The idea is since that healed is in the past tense, Perfect health is God's promise and provision for every Christian at this very moment, even as the believer has the promise to perfect forgiveness and salvation at this moment. You see how the logic goes? We have forgiveness and salvation right now at this moment. We should have perfect healing at this moment. Now, let me tell you what the problem is of this view. And when I say the problem is you, I'm not even going to count how terribly it contradicts the personal experience of so many saints in the Bible and through history. The, the problem with this view is that it misunderstands the verb tense, so to speak, of both salvation and healing. We can say without reservation that perfect, total, complete healing is God's promise to every believer in Jesus Christ, and it was paid for by his stripes and by the totality of Jesus' work for his people. But we must also say that it is not promised in fulfillment to every believer right now, just as the totality of our salvation is not promised to us right now. Do, do you understand that? I, I kind of spoke about this at the beginning. We have been justified, we are being sanctified, and we will be glorified. Until we have our resurrection and our glorification, we do not fully possess all of our salvation. I like how the Bible states it. The Bible says that we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says that we have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That is salvation in the past tense. But the scriptures also say that we are being saved. I like what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 says something very similar. The idea there is that we are being saved. It is something that is in process right now. We have been saved. We are being saved. And the Bible also says that we will be saved. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That puts it in the future tense. We are saved past present and future. But because the fulfillment of our salvation lies in the future, we do not yet in completeness possess it. Even so, there is a sense in which we have been healed, we are being healed, and one day we will be healed. And as I said before, God's ultimate healing is called resurrection. 
It is a glorious promise to every believer. And every healing that we receive on this side of eternity is just sort of patching up a tent that's going to be folded up and put away anyway. It, it anticipates the ultimate healing that will come, but it is not that final healing, that resurrection that God has promised to every one of us. You take somebody who's healed of a terrible disease, and I don't want to sound depressing when I say this, they're still going to die. They're still going to go old. They're still going to deteriorate. They're going to die. No, we await that ultimate healing that we have, and that was secured by the work of Jesus for us. We can say that our healing was secured by what Jesus endured at the cross, just as Isaiah 53, 5 says. Yet, like other aspects of our salvation, what is secured for us is not yet fully in our possession. It's not that we don't have it at all, but it's not fully in our possession. That's true in our relationship to sin and holiness. It's true in our relationship to sickness and health. This is just how it is. So we believe the promise of Isaiah 53, 5. We believe that by his stripes, we are healed. We were healed. That secures our healing, ultimately in resurrection. And God gives um, previews of that work along the way by sometimes healing people today. So that's a second reason why some people believe this. I'll give a third reason. Some people believe that God wants to heal. It's God's will to heal every believer right now today is because there is never an instance recorded in the Bible where Jesus did not heal somebody. In other words, uh, there's never an occasion in the New Testament or in the Bible period where somebody came to Jesus for healing and Jesus said no. We never find that. We never find a place where Jesus refused a request to heal somebody. Now, sometimes Jesus seemed to resist a request, and those are some interesting passages in the New Testament, but eventually he fulfilled it. And we also have a few occasions where it talks about Jesus ministering unto great multitudes and healing them, and it'll say specifically that at least on that occasion, all were healed. Everybody who was sick or injured or whatever, that they were healed. Now, the fact that the Bible tells us, and we need to be very honest, the Bible does tell us this. We never have an occasion in the Bible where somebody came to Jesus, asked for healing, and Jesus said no. Now, this leads some people to make two conclusions. Number one, they come to the conclusion that Jesus wants to do exactly the same thing today as he did in the days of his earthly ministry. Number two, it makes people to say that since we are, at least in some respect, supposed to follow Jesus, then just as Jesus seemed to heal everyone, so we should be able to go out and heal everyone. Now, let me say, I don't think that this thinking is right, and I can give you at least four reasons why I don't think it's right. Why it's just as simple to say, Jesus healed everybody during the days of his earthly ministry, and so... Uh, Jesus wants to heal of all of us. And matter of fact, we should go out and heal everybody. I don't think this is right. Let me give you four reasons why. Number one, we have to remember the connection between sin and sickness in the mind of the Jewish world in the days of Jesus. You see, that connection isn't so strong in our modern culture, at least in the Western world. But in the days of Jesus, in the Jewish community, there was a very strong association between sin and sickness. That's why Isaiah 53, verse 5, speaks like it does. Healed of transgressions, healed of sins, healed of iniquities, by his stripes you are healed. It, it just puts physical healing right along in the same context of being forgiven of sins. Because in the Jewish mind of that time, there was a very strong connection between sin and sickness. Now... If Jesus did refuse healing to somebody, it would have sent totally the wrong message that Jesus was also unwilling to cleanse and heal from sin. I think that's a very important reason why Jesus never denied somebody, at least in the biblical record. If he ever did this, we have no record of it biblically. As far as we know, Jesus never denied somebody healing who asked him, one reason why is he wanted to indicate that he will always forgive the sins of anybody who asks them. That's the first reason. The second reason is that we have to admit 
that there was something unique and wonderful about the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ on earth, something that the disciples did not match. Now, it is true that Jesus did promise that his disciples would do greater works than he did. But friends, that means greater in a collective sense. It's not like anybody ever has, ever will outperform Jesus miracle for miracle. It, it just hasn't happened and it never will happen. I mean, this is just plain. This is simple. I'm not saying anything controversial here. If there is ever a person who has outperformed Jesus miracle for miracle, I'd like to know who they are. But there's never been a single person to do it, much less the body of Christ at large. No, what Jesus meant when he said that his people would do greater works, he means collectively, and this is true, collectively, there have been more people healed through the agency of God's people on this earth than Jesus ever healed on this earth. Collectively, there have been more people preached to and brought into the kingdom than Jesus did in the days of his earthly ministry. Collectively, yes, a greater sense. But again, we should never think of this in the sense of outperforming Jesus miracle for miracle. There was something unique and wonderful about the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. Now, we also have to say, and this would be my third point, that Jesus did not heal every afflicted person he encountered. Now, again, it's true, we never have a record of Jesus uh, refusing to heal a person who asked him for healing. That's absolutely true. But Jesus was in the presence of many people who needed healing, and he did not heal them. Do you remember when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda and all around the pool, there's people who are lame and injured and, and ill and, and, sick, and, and they were waiting for the stirring of the waters because it was believed if you were the first one in after the waters were stirred, you would be healed. Jesus picked out one man among them, one man among that multitude that was there at the, gate, at the um, pool of Bethesda and Jesus healed that one man. He did not heal the others. Now, again, I want to stress, it's not as if the others asked Jesus and he refused, but we have to admit, Jesus did not heal every afflicted person that he encountered. And then number four, I would say this, that the people who were the closest to Jesus, the disciples, the apostles, those who in the most immediate sense inherited the work of Jesus the Messiah, they did not heal everyone. Now, it's true that in the book of Acts, we have the record of some spectacular healings. I'm not trying to say that they healed no one, not by any means, but we have at least two examples of people that were not healed by the disciples. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul left a man named Trophimus sick in a village or a town called Miletus. Again, he left him sick there. Well, Paul, why didn't you just heal him? Paul, wouldn't you just tell Trophimus to receive his healing? Because, apparently in that situation, it wasn't God's will to heal Trophimus. And since Paul and the other disciples were those who were most immediate to the work of Jesus, if anybody were to understand that, well, Jesus healed everybody, we're supposed to heal everybody, it would have been Paul. But he didn't. It's also seen in 1 Timothy chapter, three, uh, chapter 5, I should say, that Paul told Timothy, his close associate, to take wine for his stomach problems, to not just receive a miraculous healing by faith. And 1 Timothy 5.23 also tells us that Timothy had frequent infirmities or illnesses. Frequent. Again, and Paul just didn't heal him by an act of his will, nor did, did he tell Timothy just to claim a healing. Again, some indication right there that, that, Paul and the other apostles understood that just because Jesus healed everyone that asked for healing from Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean that God's will is to heal every believer. And let me give you a fourth reason. Uh, the first reason is because God does miracles today. The second reason why some people believe this is based on Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes we were healed. The third reason is, is because Jesus never uh, denied somebody healing who asked for it. The fourth reason some people believe that it is God's will to heal every believer is they believe that because Jesus told us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and that there is no sickness in heaven, therefore God doesn't desire there to be any sickness on earth. 
again, this is a popular teaching today. Uh, it's, um, it's really the theme of some notable ministries. That however it is in heaven, that's how God wants it to be on earth right here, right now. I would just have to say that taking that phrase from the Lord's Prayer, uh, where it simply says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as it's recorded there in Matthew chapter 6, to build an entire theology around that that says, it is God's will that right now, immediately, everything be on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's, just, that's just not consistent with the rest of the scriptures at all. You see, this assumes that, just as I said before, that all of our salvation is for right here and right now. To, to say, there is no sickness in heaven, therefore God desires there to be no sickness on earth. That, that God would heal every believer if every believer just had the faith. That's the same thing as saying, there's no death in heaven, God doesn't want anybody to die on earth. Or, um, no one gets old in heaven, so God doesn't want anybody to get old on earth. Do you believe nobody gets old in heaven? I believe that. I hope we don't get old in heaven, because we're going to be in heaven a long time. I, I don't want to be a million years old in heaven. I want to be at whatever perfect age God appoints for me, and I want to be that way for the rest of eternity. It's true, nobody gets old in heaven. So you can't say God doesn't want anybody to get old on earth. Or you won't have a car in heaven. Is it right to say God doesn't want you to have a car on earth? Or how about this? The Bible specifically says that God's people will not marry or be given in marriage in heaven, so no one should be married now, because that's how we're going to be in heaven. Again, this is, um, it's just an error in thinking to say that that line in the Lord's Prayer, or you could call it the Disciples' Prayer, that line from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that we should pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven means that God desires that right now on earth, everything should be just as it is in heaven. It just doesn't hold up at all. Now, some of this thinking can be found in the teaching of Bill Johnson and the Bethel Church in Redding, California. Bill Johnson used to be the lead pastor at Bethel Church in Redding. Uh, he's no longer described as being the senior pastor or the lead pastor. Now he's called the senior leader of the church. And I don't know exactly what that means, but obviously his uh, his influence is still very strong there at the church. And uh, he he has just a, a very widespread ministry, uh, he and the associated works of Bethel there. And, and you can see some of this in a booklet uh, that somebody gave to me uh, titled, Jesus Christ is Perfect Theology by Bill Johnson. Now, again, I, I know I could look at some other writings by Bill Johnson, but I just want to discuss some of the things that he talks about in this book and as it relates to these. M much of his thinking is based on the truth that, again, as far as we know, during the earthly days of Jesus's ministry, Jesus never refused to heal somebody. That, that's a prominent idea in this book. Now, for example, on page 14, Bill Johnson says this, Jesus healed everyone who came to him. This doesn't change because everyone I pray for, or not everyone I pray for, gets healed. Now, I just want to pause just for a moment there. That Bill Johnson deserves some credit there for not pretending that everybody he prays for gets healed. Matter of fact, I just need to share with you. Uh, I know a man. Uh, we, we did ministry together in the past. He's a man I, I know and respect. And, and this man is associated, him and his wife, with the church up there in Bethel. And uh, I haven't spoken a lot with him about it, but not long ago I was concerned about some of these things. And so we had a conversation, and I don't want to tell you all everything about the conversation. But, but he wanted to assure me that at the healing rooms that they have in Bethel, they don't believe that it's God's will to heal everyone. They know that not everybody gets healed. And here, Bill Johnson seems to indicate that. Let me read you his little quote, a sentence from verse, uh, verse from page 14 again. Jesus healed everyone who came to him. This doesn't change because not everyone I pray for gets healed. But again, 
he's emphasizing the idea. I'll read you another line from page 15. If Jesus healed everyone who came to him and the Father wills people to be sick, sick, then we have a divided house, one that, according to Jesus, cannot stand. And again, I think it's very interesting how he phrases this. Again, if Jesus healed everyone who came to him and the Father wills people to be sick, then we have a divided house, one that, according to Jesus, cannot stand. He's trying to say, again, I'll just repeat his words because it's not difficult to say that apparently based on his idea that Jesus healed everyone, that Jesus wants to heal everybody. Now, I already discussed that. I think that that's not as airtight as, as Bill Johnson and others think it is. But again, if Jesus wants to heal everybody, but the father wills people to be sick, then we have a divided house. I don't know if it's proper to say that God the Father wills people to be sick unless you carefully qualify what you mean by will. Because will can be used in the sense of very an active putting it upon, I want you to be sick, therefore I'm going to make you sick. But it can also be used in the sense of allowance. And certainly we have to say, that God the Father allows people, allows believers to be sick. God does not look down from heaven upon a sick believer and say, I will not allow that. I will heal them and just do it by his own command. So there's will in the sense of actively perform, and then there's will in a passive sense to allow. Well, I I would say that we could make the argument that God doesn't actively perform illness or disease upon people, upon uh, his people, believers. But that's something that could be debated, but let's just grant that for now. But still, that's very different from saying that God does not allow his people to be sick. Here's another thing from page 16. Uh, Bill Johnson writes, 2,000 years ago, Jesus considered all sickness to be from the devil and healing was a sign of God's kingdom come. Well, I would agree with the second part of that statement. Jesus did present his healing work as evidence that God's kingdom had come, but there's no evidence that Jesus considered all sickness to be from the devil. There are certainly some occasions in Jesus's healing work where he specifically attributed the illness somebody had to the devil, but, but he didn't do it in every occasion by any means. Now, I think that it's very important that we as believers follow what the scriptures say about wanting to interpret what other believers say, even if they're believers in error, but as charitably as possible. And I would say that it seems that Bill Johnson earnestly wants to build an environment where more and more people are healed, where more and more people see the miraculous power of God. That's something he's deeply dedicated to. I want to build an environment where more and more people are healed, where more and more people see the miraculous power of God. Therefore, it is important for him to promote the idea that God is always for the miraculous, that God is always for the healing. For example, on pages uh, 53 and 54 of this book, Jesus Christ is Perfect Theology, he says this, How much did God hate sickness? As much as he hated sin. They are dealt with almost as one and the same. What sin is to my soul, sickness is to my body. We cannot be tolerant of those things because what you tolerate dominates. You see what he's saying there? He's making a direct equivalence between sin and sickness. And just as much as God does not want any sin in my life, so God does not want any sickness in my body. Now, what's interesting about that? is we do say that even though there's a sense in which God does not want any sin in my life, God allows sin in my life, and he will allow it until I am glorified. I think a very similar situation is relevant to healing. 
Let me read you one other thing from page 19. Bill Johnson writes this. We can either create a doctrine that allows for lack or seek God until he answers. An environment of expectation naturally creates a desire to find out why, to find our why when a breakthrough doesn't come. Today, it's easier to blame God than to accept the fact that we're the ones that he left in charge. Now, let me say, in that sentence that I read to you from page 19, there's several things I would disagree with. Um, but I, I do want you to see that what Johnson's trying to do is create what he calls an environment of expectation. And you build that environment of expectation by communicating in one way or another, either specifically or by implication, God always wants to heal. And to say that God has left us in charge. Now, again, to the credit of Bill Johnson, he never comes out and says, you aren't healed, therefore it's your fault. He never comes out and says that. As I have heard some of the much more egregious health and wealth teachers say, Bill Johnson does not say that. I would describe Bill Johnson's approach to be something like this. You aren't healed yet. Let's keep asking God and believing. Now, look, there's something to be said for that approach. But I have to say, it has to end somewhere. Eventually, someone's illness doesn't go away. Eventually, the limb is amputated or never moves again. Eventually, everyone grows old and diminishes in strength. Eventually, unless Jesus returns first, we all die. So you, you can't just say you, you aren't healed yet unless you're consciously pointing towards the ultimate healing that God has promised to every believer, and that's in our glorification and resurrection. So we can't be left saying, well, it was God's will to heal you right away. It's just that nobody had the faith. Whether we mean to say that or not, and, and I don't think Bill Johnson means to say it like that, there is either directly or indirectly a blaming of the one who isn't healed. Because once you say that it is God's will to heal every believer right now, I come back to there's only two reasons why someone would not be healed. Either they're ignorant of God's promises of healing or they don't have the faith to receive God's promises of healing. Now, again, you, you just kind of ask, and I think it's a fair question, why would anyone teach this? Now, I believe it can come from a good intention. And let me explain that. There are some people who could be healed if they had the faith to receive it from God. Let me say that again, because I want to be very clear on that point. There are some people, some believers, Christians, there are some believers who could be healed if they had the faith to receive it from God. Now, surely, if you had a collection of 500 sick believers there would be some among them that God would heal right then and there if they had the faith to receive it. I don't know if you're talking about one among 500. I don't know if you're talking about 250 among 500. You know, you can debate those numbers all day long. But surely, I think this isn't really in dispute that there are some believers who could be healed if they had the faith. Now, under the kind of teaching that Bill Johnson and Bethel promotes, more of those people will in fact be healed. The ones for whom the only thing lacking is their receiving of it in faith, those ones will be encouraged to believe. Those ones will be encouraged to receive believing prayer. God will move. Those ones will be healed. Great for them. But what about the others? What about those who aren't healed? Now, again, the basic answer that Bill Johnson would give is this. Keep praying for those people, but don't focus on the fact that they didn't get healed. 
In other words, let, let's just say, and I, don't get me on the numbers here. I'm just using this purely for example. Let's say we have our collection of 500 sick Christians. And there are five among them that if they believed right here, right now, God has a healing. They just need to receive it in faith. There's five among the 500. Let's just say that those five believe and they get healed. What Bill Johnson says, focus on the five. Celebrate the five. Don't put your focus on the 495 who didn't get healed. Put your focus on the five. This is essentially what he says in this book. Again, the the little booklet. It's just a very brief book. It's a booklet. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. He says this, uh, the kingdom culture celebrates what God is doing without stumbling over what God didn't do. We must resist the temptation to build our theology around what didn't happen. The world around us cries for an authentic display of Christ. And as we become that answer, if we don't stumble over what didn't happen. Do you see what he's getting at? Again, his idea is pretty clear here. You can agree with it or disagree with it. But he's saying, let's just pretend that we create an environment of expectancy. That environment of expectancy leads those 500 to believe that God will heal five or 50, whatever number you want to pick. Five among them get healed. Celebrate the five. And don't stumble over the 495. But look, here's what we have to deal with. I, I find it curious that he said there on page 60, the world around us cries for an authentic display of Christ. That's true. But authenticity will deal with the 495 who didn't get healed, as well as the five that did. That's being authentic. You see, whether we want to stumble over what didn't happen or not, we still have to deal with it. We can't just pretend that God does heal everyone right now because the Bible doesn't teach it and we don't see it in practical experience. Even though saying, and I want to stress this, even though saying that there are no doubt some people who could be healed if they had the faith. That is the lacking element for some, but certainly not for everyone at all. Now, what is wrong with teaching that it is God's will to heal everyone right now? I mean, let's just say, okay, David, that's not true. We understand we have the promise of ultimate resurrection and healing, but it's not necessarily God's will to heal everybody right now. What, what harm does it do? Matter of fact, it's a benefit just to build up this expectancy and the five or the 50 or whatever you want to say, among the 500, they will get healed. What, why don't we just be happy with that? Well, let me tell you what's wrong with the teaching that it is God's will to heal everyone right now. Number one, it isn't true. It isn't true biblically for the reasons I've discussed already. And number two, it isn't true in life. Look, we, we got to be real. If we're going to be authentic, we got to be real about how the authentic Jesus Christ meets us in the everyday life right here, right now. So it isn't true, number one. It isn't true biblically. It isn't true in the Christian life. Number two, it is a teaching with an unintentional condemnation. And again, this condemnation may be unintentional, but it exists nevertheless. If it is God's will to heal every believer right now, then the only reason you are sick is your lack of faith. I don't see how you get around that. If there is a way to get around it, I've never heard an explanation for it. And then number three, ruin can come. When healing is proclaimed, declared, pronounced, and then it doesn't come. Now, again, I want to stress, I think that this teaching is often promoted under something of a good motive. It's not a bad motive to want to see more people healed. But if the healing does not come, you have to be real about it. And let me tell you what kind of gets me. And folks, this has gotten me personally because I've seen this with my own eyes. I remember very vividly in my mind an occasion 
where we came to pray for a man who had cancer. And the doctor said that he wasn't far from death. And there were some uh, among the group of, I don't know, four or five people there to pray for this man. There were some who kind of believed that it was God's will to heal everybody right now and that this was God's promise and we just need to believe this. And they were, they were proclaiming him healed, where they were declaring him healed. They were pronouncing him healed right there in the presence of his wife. There was no doubt, no backing away. Proclaimed, declared, pronounced, healed. And within a month or two, the man was dead. Apart from all the proclaiming, all the declaring, all the pronouncing, the man was not healed in this life. I think he was healed in heaven. No doubt about it. He was a believer. But that's not the way they meant it. They meant it. You will not die from this illness. We proclaim it. We declare it. We pronounce it. Now, this is what I want to say. If someone does that, and even if they believe they have the prompting of faith to do it, this is what I earnestly plead. If the healing doesn't happen, you have to be real about it and go back and apologize. You need to go back and apologize to that widow and say, ma'am, I am so sorry. I really believe that God wanted to heal your husband. And we proclaimed it. We declared it. We pronounced it. And to our great sorrow, God did not heal your husband. I'm sorry I got that one wrong. That's what you need to do. But you see, I see the unattended consequence of what Bill Johnson talking about here, creeping in here. You, you don't focus on what God didn't do. So when God doesn't heal, you just forget about it. You just act like it never happened. But it happened. You did proclaim. You did declare. You did pronounce. And, and we're not saying that you need to be infallible and always get that right. But what we're saying is when you get it wrong, you need to own up to it. And I think you need to confess and, and say you're sorry to the people involved in that. As for the person who went to heaven, you could say you're sorry to them in heaven. They're feeling no pain, believe me. But I understand Bill Johnson's approach saying, let's not focus on what God doesn't do, but we have to be real about it when the healing doesn't come. And let me say this, and I know that I've gone a long time in this video, but I, I can't stop yet. I think one of the greatest difficulties with this teaching that God wants to heal every believer right here, right now. It, it goes along with the teaching that God wants every believer to be a uh, wealthy, financially, you know, uh, fulfilled in every respect, wealthy right now. What these doctrines do is there's a lot of trouble with what they teach in themselves. And I've talked a lot about that. But one of the worst parts about these doctrines is what they do not teach. They deny that there's any legitimate place of suffering in the Christian life. And if you're a believer and nobody's ever explained this to you, you might want to sit down for what I'm going to tell you. And I hope you don't feel deceived that, that nobody ever explained this to you before, but there is a real place for suffering in the Christian life. I, I'm going to read you several verses. Ready for this? We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. That's Romans 5, 3. My brethren, 
Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. That's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's Philippians 3.10. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. That's Romans 8. 17. Now, I could go on and on, but I hope those eight verses are enough to show you. There is a real place that God has for suffering in the Christian life. And here's the fact. We don't get to choose the way we suffer. We don't get to choose our trials. Sometimes we think, Well, I could endure suffering as long as I can choose what the suffering is. But that's not how it works in our walk with God. And I think that the place of suffering in the Christian life is something that doesn't get enough attention. There are some people who want to ignore it altogether. Again, let me read you a couple sentences from this book by Bill Johnson. He says, Things have disintegrated so far that many consider sickness to be sent or allowed by God to build our character. Again, that's on page 16. And the idea simply here is that he he, he would say, there is no way that God would ever allow sickness to build the character of a Christian. I, I don't think you can say that. I really don't. There is no doubt that God allows suffering in the Christian life to build character, to develop us as disciples. There's no doubt about it in the New Testament, none. But to say, well, there is no way whatsoever that God would allow sickness to be a part of that equation, I just don't see it at all. Matter of fact, in page 18 of this little booklet, Bill Johnson said, we don't ever find Jesus blessing a storm that was coming at him and the disciples. Well, There are blessings in storms. There are things that we learn and gain through suffering. Now, I want to make this very clear. Not all suffering is God's desire for the believer. There is completely unnecessary suffering that may come upon us from the world, the flesh, or the devil, that God has no intent. God just wants to deliver us from that suffering. That's why it's God's will to heal some Christians. I absolutely believe that. So I'm not trying to say that every occasion of suffering is uh, wanted to be in, in a believer's life, in the plan of God, you know, for them to endure. No, God may have allowed a suffering to come to the Christian so that he could believe them to get it out. But certainly there are some occasions where God has a purpose for suffering in the life of the Christian. You know, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Now, praise God, he didn't stop there. He said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's in John chapter 16, verse 33. But it's true. We will have tribulation. It's just part of the Christian life. And it is part of our fellowship with Jesus Christ. I want to read you again a verse that I read earlier in those eight verses talking about suffering in the Christian life. Let me read you Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul wrote this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul knew the fellowship of sufferings his sufferings, being conformed to his death. There are aspects of our fellowship with God that we enter into through suffering. 
just the way it is. And there's a third reason. Part of it is just part of the Christian life. It's also part of fellowship with Christ, but it's also so that we can comfort others. Don't forget what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 3, where we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, you will also partake of the consolation. D do you see this? But Paul says it's just part of our Christian life. And part of what God works in us is the ability to comfort other people with the comfort that God works within us in a time of suffering. And by the way, that passage makes us think a little bit more about what you could call the heaven-on-earth theology. You see, for certain, Jesus Christ is not suffering in heaven. Do we agree on that? Jesus is not suffering in heaven. There is no suffering in heaven. But God does have an appointed role for suffering, even in the life of the faithful believer here on earth. I'll give you a fourth reason why God has appointed um suffering in the life of the believer. It's so that we can grow in our perseverance. Romans chapter 5 verses 3 and 4 says this, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Again, God has a plan, a role, a purpose for suffering in the life of the believer. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says that it's part of our being in the family of God. Check this out. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 16, says this. If the, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Now look again. God has a place for suffering in the Christian life. Now, there are some people who feel that suffering is God's second or third or fourth or fifth best way to teach us. Here's the idea. Well, you might learn something from suffering, but if you really have faith and if you really know the word, God will never teach you through suffering. He'll just teach you through the word. I need to tell you, I don't agree with that. I don't believe that suffering is God's second best way to teach us. No, I don't believe it's the only way that God teaches us. Please, please, please. God does want to teach us through the Word. God does want to teach us through a walk in the Spirit. God has many ways to teach us apart from suffering. But suffering is still a necessary and important aspect of God's toolbox, so to speak, in teaching us. You know how I know this? Because Jesus learned by sufferings. Let me say this again. Jesus learned by suffering. Is anybody going to look me in the eye and tell me that Jesus was in God's second best? Never. Do you know what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8? It says this of Jesus. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus learned obedience by suffering, and Jesus was never in God's second best. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For it was fitting for him, meaning Jesus, it was fitting for Jesus, whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And we would say this as well. That just as Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 16, the servant is not greater than the master. If God used suffering for the purpose of instruction in the life of Jesus, then who are we to despise suffering 
if God chooses to use it for instruction in our own life. Now, I'm not saying, and this gets on many other subjects that I'm not going to deal with right now. I'm not saying necessarily that God actively sends the suffering or the sickness or whatever. I'm not saying that. But I will say that God has allowed it. Because, look, I, I do want to make this point. I said it before, but I want to say it again. It is very wrong to say that all suffering that any Christian goes through is from God for instruction. No. Peter warns us that we may suffer needlessly out of our own fault. Peter speaks in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that we should take care that we suffer as a Christian, not as a busybody, not as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. No, there are Christians who suffer unnecessarily, and God would love to deliver them from that suffering. But that still doesn't take away that we need to have a proper theology of suffering, understanding that God has a purpose for it. Now, we've gone a long way in this video, so let me wrap it up with some conclusions. Uh, again, the opening question was simply this. Is it God's will to heal every believer right now? I asked a question more economically than that. I just said, is it God's will to heal everyone? Does God promise to heal everyone? What we mean by that is, does God promise to heal every believer right now? So let me give a few concluding points relevant to that question. Number one, God promises and has made provision for the healing of every believer, and this is ultimately fulfilled in our resurrection. Even if your healing is not yet in your possession, it is secured for you by the work of Jesus on the cross. By his stripes you were healed. Therefore, we can have victory and triumph even when we're sick. And our sickness does not have to define us. You know, I love the story of the great old man on his deathbed. This man who had walked with God. And somebody very tenderly comes up to him and asks him, How do you feel? And you know what he answered? He said, Almost better. You know what he meant by that? He said, I'm almost healed. That's victory. God can give us victory and triumph. He can give us victory and triumph from sickness by healing us. Or he can give us victory and triumph in the sickness because our sicknesses not have to define us, not in any way. No, we are children of God and we are absolutely promised ultimate victory over all those things. And our victory, our healing is secured even if on this side of eternity it is not entirely in our possession yet. Now, we understand that. Number two, we understand that in the here and now, God gives gracious previews of that ultimate fulfillment and God can heal people today and sometimes does. The last impression I want anybody to get from this video is that God is finished with healing people. He's not. And there is nothing wrong with praying for healing. There is nothing wrong with believing for healing. Now, we must accept that God does not always heal immediately. And we must accept that we may not know or understand why God does not heal in a particular situation. Maybe we know. Maybe God would reveal it to somebody. This is why this person is not healed. This is what I'm accomplishing. Or this is what the problem is. It may be that. But we must accept that we may not know or understand why God does not heal in a particular situation. So pray for healing. Believe for healing. But just accept God does not always heal immediately, though he does for the believer always heal ultimately. And we may not know or understand why he doesn't heal. Number three, and I'll say this just to follow up on the point I just made. There are some people, there are some believers who could be healed right now if they believed God for it and received prayer for it. How many, what proportion, I have no idea. But, but maybe it's you. Maybe it is. 
There are some people, some believers who could be healed if they believed God for it, if they received prayer for it. If you are sick, if you are ill, you do what the Bible tells you to do in the book of James. You go to the elders of your church. You have them lay hands upon you and pray in faith that you would be healed. And then you leave it to God. That's exactly what you should do. And who knows? Maybe God would give you a temporary, immediate gift of healing. Now, when I say temporary, I just mean in light of the fact that you're eventually going to die anyway unless Jesus comes first. I don't mean temporary like it'll last a half hour. I mean temporary in the fast that, that even if it lasts your entire earthly life, it'll only last your entire earthly life. But there are some people, some believers, they could be healed if they believed God for it and received prayer for it now. But then fourth, and I'll conclude with this, God has a gracious purpose for suffering in our life. And we should not despise the purpose of suffering that God uses to accomplish the purpose that he has for it in our life. Don't despise it. Jesus Christ learned obedience through the things which he suffered. There will be times and places where God uses suffering in our life to teach us. It's never pleasant, but God knows what he's doing in our life. I pray this will be a help, a blessing, perhaps an encouragement to you. And I hope you can continue to use the resources on the YouTube channel, on my website, EnduringWord.com. And I'll speak to you again about other important questions. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.